0: Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from a sermon that was once preached by Charles Spurgeon. Now, this message is from a collection of Spurgeon messages created by Perry Boardman. It's known as Spurgeon's Gems. Today's message is from Volume 1 of that selection, and it's number 45. It's called Conversion. Conversion. You can access this series of messages online at spurgeongems.com. Conversion. This is a sermon delivered on Sabbath morning, October 7, 1855, by Pastor Spurgeon at New Park Street Chapel in Southwark, England. And his text is James chapter 5. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. James 5, verses 19 and 20. The true believer is always pleased to hear of anything which concerns the salvation of his own soul. He rejoices to hear of the covenant plan drawn up for him from all eternity, of the great fulfillment on the cross at Calvary, of all the stipulations of the Savior, of the application of them by the Holy Spirit, of the security which the believer has in the person of Christ, and of those gifts and graces which accompany salvation to all those who are heirs thereof. But I feel certain that uh, deeply pleased as we are when we hear of things touching our own salvation and deliverance from hell, we as preachers of God and as new creatures in Christ, being made like unto Him, have true benevolence of spirit, and therefore are always delighted when we hear, speak, or think concerning the salvation of others. Next to our own salvation, I am sure, as Christians, we shall always prize the salvation of other people. We shall always desire that what has been so sweet to our own taste may also be tasted by others. And what has been of so inestimably precious a value to our own souls may also become the property of all those whom God may please to call unto everlasting life. I am sure, beloved, now that I am about to preach concerning the conversion of the ungodly, you will take as deep an interest in it as if it were something that immediately concerned your own souls. For, after all, such were some of you once. You were unconverted and ungodly. And you had not, had not God taken thought for you and set his people to strive for your souls, where would you have been? Seek then to exercise that charity and benevolence towards others which God and God's people first exercised towards you. Our text has in it, uh, first of all, a principle involved, that of instrumentality. It says, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he who converteth a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death. Secondly, here is a general fact stated, He who converteth a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Thirdly, there's a particular application of this fact made, brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him. That is the same principle as when a sinner is converted from the error of his way. Well, first then, here is a, a great principle involved, a very important one, that of instrumentality. God has been pleased in his inscrutable wisdom and intelligence to work the conversion of others by instrumentality. True, he does not in all cases so do, but it is his general way. Instrumentality is the plan of the universe. In the new creation, it is almost always God's invariable rule to convert by means of instruments. Now, we will make one or two brief remarks upon this first principle. First, we say that instrumentality is not necessary with God. God can, if he pleases, convert souls without any instruments whatsoever. The mighty maker who chooses to use the sword sometimes can, if he pleases, slay without it. He who uses the workman, the trowel, the hammer can, if he so sees fit, build the house in a moment, and from the foundation stone, even to the top stone thereof, can complete it by the words of his own mouth. We never hear of any instrumentality used in the conversion of Abraham. He lived in a far-off land in the midst of idolaters. But he was called from Ur of the Chaldees, and thence God called him and brought him to Canaan by an immediate voice, doubtless from above, by God's own agency, without the employment of any prophet. For we read of none who could, as far as we can see, have preached to Abraham and taught him the truth. Then in modern times we have a mighty instance of the power of God in converting without human might. Uh, Saul, in his journey towards Damascus, upon his horse, fiery and full of fury against the children of God, is hastening to hail men and women and cast them into prison to bring them bound unto Jerusalem. But on a sudden, a voice is heard from heaven, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And Saul was a new man. No minister was his spiritual parent. No book could claim him as its convert, no human voice, but the immediate utterance of Jesus Christ himself at once, there and then, upon the spot, brought Saul to know the truth. Moreover, there are some men who never seem to need conversion at all, for we have one instance in Scripture of John the Baptist, of whom it is said he was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, the mighty maker of the world who used no angels to beat out the great mass of nature and fashion it into a round globe. He who without hammer or anvil fashioned this glorious world can, if he pleases, speak and it is done. Command and it shall stand fast. He needs not instruments, though he uses them. Secondly, we make another remark, which is that instrumentality is very honorable to God and not dishonorable. One would think perhaps at first sight that it would f- reflect more glory to God if he effected all conversions himself without the use of men. But that's a great mistake. It is as honorable to God to convert by means of Christians and others as it would be if he should effect it alone. Suppose a, a workman has power and skill with his hands alone to fashion a certain article, but you put into his hands the worst tools you can find. Well, you know he can do it well with his hands, but these tools are so badly made that they will be the greatest impediment you could lay in his way. Well, now, I say, if a man with these bad instruments or these poor tools, the things without edges that are broken, that are weak and frail, is able to make some beautiful fabric, he has more credit from the use of those tools than he would have had if he had done it simply with his hands because the tools, so far from being an advantage, were a disadvantage to him. So far from being a help are, on my supposition, even a detriment to him in his work. So with regard to human instrumentality, so far from being any assistance to God, we are all hindrances to him. What is a minister? He is made by God a means of salvation. But it is a wonderful thing that anyone so faulty, so imperfect, so little skilled should yet be blessed of God to bring forth children for the Lord Jesus. It seems as marvelous as if a man could fashion rain from fire. Or if he should fabricate some precious alabaster vase out of the refuse of the dunghill. God in his mercy does more than make Christians without means. He takes bad means to make good men with. And so he even reflects credit on himself because his instruments are all of them such poor things. They are all such earthen vessels that they do not even set out the glory of the gold which they hold, like the foil that sets forth the jewel, or like the dark spot in the painting that makes the light more brilliant. And yet the dark spot and the foil are not in themselves costly or valuable. And so God uses instruments to set forth his own glory and to exalt himself. That brings me to another remark that usually God does employ instruments. Perhaps in one case out of a thousand, men are converted by the immediate agency of God, and so indeed are all in one sense. But but usually in 99 cases out of a 100, God is pleased to use the instrumentality of his ministering servants, of his word, of Christian men, or some other means to bring us to the Savior. I have heard of some, I remember them now, who who were called like Saul at at once from heaven. We can remember the history of the brother who in the, the darkness of the night was called to know the Savior by what he believed to be a vision from heaven or some effect on his imagination. On one side he saw a black tablet of his guilt and his soul was delighted to see Christ cast a white tablet over it. And he thought he heard a voice that said, I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. There was a man converted without almost any instrumentality. But you do not meet with such a case often. Most persons have been convinced by the pious conversation of sisters or by the holy example of mothers or by the minister, by the Sabbath school teacher, or by the reading of tracts or perusing scripture. Let us not therefore believe that God will often work without instruments. Let us not sit down silently and say, well, God will do his own work. It is quite true he will, but then he does his work by using his children as instruments. He does not say to the Christian man when he is converted, you sit down, I have nothing for you to do. Well, I'll do it all myself and I'll have all the glory. No, he says, you're a poor, weak instrument. You can do nothing but lo, I will strengthen you and I will make you thrash the mountains and beat them small and make the hills as chaff. And so shall I get more honor through your having done it than if I had used my own strong arm and smitten the mountains and broken them in pieces. And now another thought, and that is, If God sees fit to make use of any of us for the conversion of others, we must not, therefore, be too sure that we are converted ourselves. It is a most solemn thought that God makes use of ungodly men as instruments for the conversion of sinners. And it is strange that some most terrible acts of wickedness have been the means of the conversion of men. When Charles II ordered the book of sports to be read in churches, and after the service, the clergyman was required to read to all the people to spend the afternoon in what are called harmless diversions and games, that I will not mention here, even that was made the means of conversion. For one man said within himself, I have always disported myself thus on the sabbath i always played games on the, on sunday but now to hear this read in church how wicked we must have become how the whole land must be corrupt it led him to think of his own corruption and brought him to the savior there have been words proceeding i had almost said from devils which have been the means of conversion Grace is not spoiled by the rotten wooden spout that it runs through. God did once speak by a donkey to Balaam, but that did not spoil his words. And so he speaks, not simply by a donkey, which he often does, but by something worse than that. He can fill the mouths of ravens with food for an Elijah, and yet the raven is a raven still. We must not suppose because God has made us useful that we are therefore converted ourselves. But then another thing, if God in his mercy does not make us useful to the conversion of sinners, we are not therefore to say we are sure we are not the children of God. I believe there are some ministers who have had the painful labor of toiling from year to year without seeing a single soul regenerated. And yet, those men have been faithful to their charge and have well discharged their ministry. I do not say that such cases often occur, but I believe they have occurred sometimes. And yet, mark you, the end of their ministry has been answered after all. For what is the end of the gospel ministry, meaning the purpose of it? Some will say it is to convert sinners. Well, that's a collateral end. Others will say it is to convert the saints. That is true. But the proper answer to give is, (coughs) it is to glorify God. And God is glorified, even in the damnation of sinners. If I testify to them the truth of God, and they reject His gospel, if I faithfully preach His truth, and they scorn it, my ministry is not therefore void. It is not returned to God void, for even in the punishment of those rebels he will be glorified, even in their destruction he will get himself honor. And if he cannot get praise from their songs, he will at last get honor from their condemnation and overthrow, and he shall cast them into the fire forever. The true motive for which we should always labor is the glory of God in the conversion of souls and building up of God's people. But let us never lose sight of the great purpose. Let God be glorified, and he will be if we preach his truth faithfully and honestly. So therefore, while we should seek for souls, if God denies them unto us, let us not say, I will not have other mercies that he has given. But let us comfort ourselves with the thought that though they be not saved, though Israel be not gathered in, God will glorify and honor us at last. One thought more upon this subject. God, by using us as instruments, confers upon us the highest honor which men can receive. O oh, beloved, I dare not dilate upon this. It should make our hearts burn at the thought of it. It makes us feel thrice honored that God should use us to convert souls. And it is only the grace of God which teaches us, on the other hand, that it is grace, and grace alone, which makes us useful, which can keep us humble under the thought that we are bringing souls to the Savior. It is a work which he who has once entered, if God has blessed him, he cannot renounce. He will be impatient. He will long to win more souls to Jesus. He will think that toil is but rest. He will think that labor is but ease, so that by any means he may save some and bring men to Jesus. Glory and honor, praise and power be unto God, that he thus honors his people. But when he exalts us most, we will still conclude with, Not unto us, not unto us, but unto thy name be all the glory forever and ever. Well, secondly, we come to the general fact, and I will only be able to begin this one today, folks. We'll finish it next time, but we come to the general fact, and that is, He which converts a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. The choicest happiness which mortal breast can know is the happiness of benevolence, doing good to our fellow creatures. To save a body from death is that which gives us almost heaven on earth. Some men can boast that they have sent so many souls to perdition that they've hurled many of their fellows out of the world. We meet now and then a soldier who can glory that in battle he struck down so many of his enemies that his swift and cruel sword reached the heart of so many of them. But I count not that glory. If I thought I had been the means of the death of a single individual, I think I would scarcely rest at night, for the uneasy ghost of that murdered wretch would stare me in my eyes. I should remember I had slain him and perhaps sent his soul unshriven and unwashed into the presence of his Maker. It seems to me wonderful that men can be found to be soldiers. I say not if it be right or wrong. Still, I, I wonder where they can find the men? I know not how after a battle they can wash their hands of blood, wipe their swords and put them down and and then lie down to sleep and, and their dreams be undisturbed. Methinks the tears would fall hot and scalding on my cheek at night and the shrieks of the dying and the groans of those approaching eternity would torture my ear. I know not how others can endure it. To me, it would be the very portal of hell if I could think I had been a destroyer of my fellow creatures. Ah, but what bliss it is to be the instrument of saving bodies from death. Those monks on Mount St. Bernard uh, surely must feel happiness when they rescue men from death. The dog comes to the door and, and they know what it means. He's discovered some poor, weary traveler who has lain him down to sleep in the snow and is dying from cold and exhaustion. Uprise the monks from their cheerful fire, intent to act the good Samaritan to the lost one. At last they see him, they speak to him, but he answers not. They try to discover if there is breath in his body and they think he is dead. They take him up, give him remedies and Hastening to their hostel, they lay him by the fire and warm and chafe him, looking into his face with kindly anxiety, as much as to say, Poor creature, are you dead? When at last they perceive some heaving of the lungs, what joy is in the breast of those brethren, as they say, his life is not extinct. I think if there could be happiness on earth, it would be the privilege to help to chafe one hand of that poor (coughs) poor almost dying man and be the means of bringing him to life again. Or suppose another case. A house is in flames. In it is a woman with her children who cannot by any means escape. In vain she attempts to come downstairs. The flames prevent her. She's lost all presence of mind, does not know how to act. The strong man comes and says, make way, make way. I must save that woman. And cooled by the genial streams of benevolence, he marches through the fire. Though scorched and almost stifled, he gropes his way. He ascends one staircase and then another. And though the stairs totter, he places the woman beneath his arm, takes the child on his shoulder, and down he comes, twice a giant having more might than he ever possessed before. He has jeopardized his life. And perhaps an arm may be disabled, or a limb taken away, or a sense lost, or an injury irretrievable done to his body. Yet he claps his hands and says, I have saved lives from death. The crowd in the street hail him as a man who has been the deliverer of his fellow creatures, honoring him more than the monarch who had stormed a city and sacked a town and murdered myriads. But ah, brethren. The body which was saved from death today may die tomorrow. Not so the soul that is saved from death. It is saved everlastingly. It is saved beyond the fear of destruction. And if there be joy in the breast of a benevolent man when he saves a body from death, how much more blessed must he be when he is made the means in the hands of God of saving a soul from death and hiding a multitude of sins. I'm going to stop right there in the middle of this second point, And I'm sorry I have to do so. But trying to keep these two parts as equal as possible. Next time around we will finish, finish this wonderful message of Charles Spurgeon. As I said, you can get this series of messages online at SpurgeonGems.com. I'm talking about the written portions. The written sermons. Well, this is the Hackberry House of Chosun. This audio is being released on the 14th of February, 2023. Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.